So we're in week five, and as I said, barely scratching the surface of each of these covenants. We've been very briefly looking at God's covenant with creation, covenants in general, then with Noah, with Abraham and Moses. And this morning we will be considering God's covenant with David, with King David. And I know you folk know your Old Testaments really well, but I just want to put us in some historical context of what's happening leading up to David Um, because it's helpful just to revise and remind ourselves of that. So creation's taken place, as has the fall, sin has entered the world and with that death, the flood has occurred, leaving only Noah and his extended family to take up the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But in all of that, the heart of man has not changed. There's been a promise back in Genesis 3 of the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. That promise is still there and anticipated all the way through Scripture. But even after the flood, the heart of man hasn't changed. His heart is still evil. And we saw that back with Noah. The flood didn't transform the sinful nature of the human heart. Then there's the Tower of Babel, the incomplete Tower of Babel. And that's resulted in the scattering of humanity and the confusion of language over all the face of the earth. And out of that scattering, Abram is called. And he's promised by God that he would have a great name. We saw this a couple of weeks ago. A great, he would become a great nation and he would be the recipient of God's blessing, including life in the promised land. All of that in order to bless those who would bless him, who would acknowledge where the, the source of his blessing be the Lord. But as we saw, it would actually be 400 years or more before all of that came to fruition. They would be sojourners in a different land for 400 years until the Lord brought them back, Abraham's descendants. They would then enter the promised land and for that to take place, last week we saw the Lord calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt into the land of Canaan, which Moses himself, because of his own failure, to uphold the Lord as holy together with the older generation who were unfaithful and didn't trust in the Lord as they were to enter. They failed to enter, didn't they? So it was the next generation under Joshua who entered the promised land. And you'll probably know after the book of Joshua in the Old Testament comes the book of Judges. So God's people begin their conquest of Canaan. If you look at the book of Judges, the whole first chapter is just all about this conquest as they enter the land and really it's God fulfilling his promise and the people doing what he's asked them to do. But they don't do that fully. They don't remove all the inhabitants. They leave themselves vulnerable to the threat of retaliation but also to the threat and temptation of those other people's idols which often had happened through um, intermarrying. And in all that mess and chaos and sin that takes place, the Lord raises up judges. Because for, for a few years things are good and then things spiral down, people cry out, and the Lord raises up a judge. And that word judge is really a ruler, but also a deliverer, one who would deliver the people. And he would raise up a judge and he'd rescue them and things would be good for another few years, maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 40 But then again, the people would be unfaithful. They'd get caught up again in idolatry and unfaithfulness and the Lord would raise up another judge and again and again. And the book of Judges, I don't know if you've ever studied the book of Judges, but the book of Judges ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds a bit like back in Noah and the flood day, doesn't it? In those days there was no king. There's only judges, one after the other. But why even bother mentioning there was no king? Wasn't the Lord, wasn't Yahweh meant to be king? He was Lord of Israel, he was their covenant Lord. Yes, he was. But that final statement at the end of Judges is the perfect segue into the book of Samuel where the people ask for a king. One like the nations. They wanted a king to be judge over them. One who would go out before them and fight their battles for them. Now a couple of things to note before we go on. Those of you astute and aware of your Old Testament would know that between the book of Judges, even with that great segue, there's no king, and then we have Samuel. What comes between Judges and Samuel? You've got it in your notes. Little book of Ruth. Why is that in there? This lovely story that tells of the story of Ruth and her faithfulness to Naomi and her God, Yahweh, the Lord, and then of her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, and how all that eventuates. But the story of Ruth also introduces in the very opening verse to a little town called Bethlehem, which is merely in the context of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. It's just a geographical sort of indication, just a little reference. But it turns out to have a huge significance, doesn't it, theologically and in the history of Israel and God's great plan of redemption. Because even before the end of the book of Ruth, we hear that Naomi from Bethlehem through Ruth and her marriage to Boaz is given a son. A son they named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Sort of helps us, the beginning and end of Ruth tells us really why Ruth's there for us in our scriptures between Judges and Samuel. And secondly, I don't know if you picked it up when we studied God's covenant with Abraham. I did read it, but intentionally made no remark about it at the time. But in God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 17, when his name's changed from Abram to Abraham, and he talks about that, the covenant sign of circumcision, the Lord says this, Your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. But in that promise to Abraham, the Lord says, kings will come from you. There was never any doubt Israel was meant to have a king. God had made provision in his covenant with Abraham for a king to rule Israel. He'd also made provision in the law which we'll look at in a moment, he gave instructions for the kings of Israel when he gave a covenant to Moses. And so it's fair to say there was no trouble at all with Israel asking Samuel for a king. The trouble was that they wanted a king like the other nations. They were God's chosen and holy set-apart people and they were meant to be set-apart. They were meant to set themselves apart as God had set them apart. You will be holy because I'm holy. And yet they wanted to be just like everybody else. And isn't that the battle we face in the church today? (laughs) And in our own lives, as the flesh and sin and the evil one actually try to remove our holiness, not just our purity, but the fact that we are meant to set apart and stand apart from the world 
in the world but not of it and yet we've let the world creep in in so many ways. We want to be like the nations. That's not what God's called us to be. So there was no trouble with them asking for a king. The trouble was they wanted a king like the other nations. And Samuel expresses his displeasure at that request. But the Lord says to Samuel, don't worry, they're not rejecting you because he had sort of effectively been judge over them. They're actually rejecting me, God, as their king. And the Lord says, we'll give them what they ask for. You tell them, we will give them what they ask for, but you tell them also what it will mean for them to have a king. And have a listen to this back in 1 Samuel 8. This is Samuel telling the people, okay, you'll you'll receive a king. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Did you pick up the most common phrase in that? He will take, he will take for himself, he will take. This is the king they're asking for. He will take for himself sons, men, horses, women, servants, money. This king of their choosing will take, take and take it all. So different, such a stark contrast to the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 17. I will make, I will establish, I will bless, I will give. This king is going to be all about himself, for himself, for himself. God is all for us, all for us, all for us. So different to the very nature and character of God and so different to the character of the king of kings and lord of lords in Christ. Which sort of helps us a little bit when we see the picture of Saul and then David, a man after God's own heart. Saul is a man who's only going to take and take and take. David as a man after God's own heart reflects something of the give, the generosity of God. God who gives and gives so much, so loved the world that he gave his only son. If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? See the problem with asking for a king like the other nations instead of trusting the Lord as king. From the outset then we can see that Saul, the first king of Israel, is not the king of God's choosing. He's not a king who reflects God's character. He's not a king after God's own heart like David is. One gives, the other takes. One is all about giving thanks and praise to God. The other is all about himself either in fear or folly or outright rebellion. And so Saul is appointed king. But in the middle of Saul's reign, David, a man after God's own heart, he's chosen 
and he's anointed by God through Samuel, all the way back in 1 Samuel 16, where we learn, well, Saul's already done his dash a couple of times and the Lord's got big question, more than big question marks, he's already chosen David. But we read that David's nothing like Saul at all. Saul was quite literally a man who was head and shoulders above the rest, wasn't he? He was tall. He was a big man. He was the right man to actually confront Goliath. But he didn't. He shook in his boots. Nor is David like his older brothers, who when presented to Samuel, Samuel says, wow, these guys look promising, especially the first one and even the next one. No, not him, not him, says the Lord. Not till we get to the youngest, ruddy David. Why? Because the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And David, we know, is a man after God's own heart. He's not perfect. We know that. But David, in his heart, seeks to follow the Lord. He honours the Lord. He desires the things of God and the will of God. And even when Saul is given into his hand a couple of times, more than once, his arch enemy, really, David says, no, 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 I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, even though he's encouraged by his men. He stands right next to him with a spear in his hand. Which tells us something of David's heart, doesn't it? He's a patient man. He was a patient man. And I'd say, therefore, a man who trusted the Lord to his word. He was anointed back in 1 Samuel 16. It's not for another 16 chapters in the books of Samuel that we read about the ultimate downfall of Saul and then the rise of David. It's all taking place. But ultimately, that means Saul's trying to do away with David. He knows the threat that's there. But it's not until after Saul's death that David is anointed king of Judah. He's waited all that time, all those years. And it's still a few years later before he's crowned as king over all Israel. That's in the early chapters of Second Samuel. And then in chapter 7, finally, David has conquered Jerusalem. No mean feat. That was a pretty good stronghold. And he's brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And it's at that point the Lord makes his covenant with David. It wasn't a covenant about you'll be king. He'd already appointed him way back. No, but your kingship, your dynasty, your line will be king, will rule forever. But that begins, as we read in 2 Samuel 7, with David wanting to make a house for the Lord, that is a temple. A good thing it would seem, at least Nathan the prophet thought it was good. Sure, go do all that's in your heart, Lord, David. Absolutely, sounds like a good idea, the Lord is with you. Until later that night, (laughs) the Lord shows up to Nathan and says, no, no, I don't need a house. I haven't asked for a house. And David is not the man who's going to build me a house. His son will, but not David. I've uh, quoted William Dumbrell a couple of times already in these uh, studies, but he gives us some useful background about the notion of building a temple for the Lord. Because in the development of the city-states, he says, in Mesopotamia, not just Israel, but Israel closely reflects what's taking place there, the government... So the civil government of the city-state was recognised to be merely the reflection of the cosmic reality of divine government. Pharaoh was considered to be God, representation of God. Okay, so 
the, the divine government stood behind the city-state and what we see on earth is just a reflection of that. The king represented God, the apex of the hierarchy, of the divine hierarchy, and in various levels under the king reflected the pantheon of, of lesser figures. And that whole analogy, that whole picture is given concrete expression in the relationship between the city-state temple as a house for God and the king's palace, a house for the king. And so the temple was regarded as the earthly residence of the deity of the city-state, of the God. And the king's palace was regarded as the residence for the deities, for the God's earthly steward. Okay, so the king's palace says the king, but the king is actually God's earthly steward. And the temple is the residence of the deity itself. The temple was the point of contact between the two worlds, the city-state and the cosmic state, which stands behind it. And so the capture of Jerusalem, back in 2 Samuel 5, and the Lord's declaration expressed in the ark, being brought up to take residence in Jerusalem, it makes sense that David would at this time desire to build a house for the Lord. If this is where we're going to settle, this is it. This is the right good and right place to do it. But the Lord makes three things clear to David in his desire. Firstly, as God, he doesn't need and he doesn't want to be contained or enshrined in a temple building. He hasn't been for all the decades beforehand, has he? He's wandered with his people. I don't need a house to dwell in. Yet, there is now permanent residency there in Israel and it seems good and right and even the Lord himself said, I will choose a name for my place to dwell. He's already said that. And so it's right that a temple will be built, but not to contain God. The earth's his footstool. You're not going to plonk him in a little house and say, there you go, live in there. No, they've been rather mobile up until now, but now they've settled and whilst it's not essential, it does seem good and right And as I said, God himself said he would give them a place and a time of rest and a place where his name would dwell, a place that he would choose, where they, the people, could present their offerings to him, where they could worship him. And so we have one of the Psalms, don't we, among others, how lovely is thy dwelling place, O God. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your temple than anywhere else. But the Lord doesn't need a house. Secondly, the Lord makes it clear to David he's not going to be the one to build that temple. Uh, 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 22, sheds a little light as to why that's the case. It's not so clear here in 2 Samuel, but it's because he's had blood on his hands. Okay? It's not that David's particularly a bloodthirsty man or that he's been obsessed with war. He's simply been doing what a king should do. He's actually fulfilling, even when he's running away from Saul and he goes into Philistine land, remember that? And he tells the Philistine Lord, I've been doing this, when really he's been conquering (laughs) the other tribes in Canaan. He's actually doing what Israel should have done when they first came into the land. So David's actually just doing what a king would and should do, particularly in that time um, of the conquest. And yet, no, because he has been a man of war, the Lord says, no, it's not for you to build the temple. Your son will, not you. David was only doing, he was occupied with war because the Lord through him was putting Israel's enemies under his feet. That's what God had promised. I'll give you a place of rest, but for that to happen, your enemies need to be put under your feet and David was the man to accomplish that almost to its, not to its fullness, but much more than it had been. 
And as Dumbrell notes, David's now achieved that with the help of the Lord. He's achieved what no judge could do, giving Israel rest from her enemies. And as the Lord promised back in 2 Samuel 5, David's going to be shepherd and prince or king of Israel, pointing to even the greater shepherd, really, to come. The one who will be, who will give all his kingdom people true rest and eternal rest. But with David's office, and even what he says about Solomon, I will be a father to him, he will be a son. David himself is sort of, um, remember the Lord said to Abraham and then through Moses at Sinai, out of Egypt I've called my son. And now David, as the Lord's anointed, as that sort of, that large corporate Israel I've called my son is now applied specifically to David and through that kingship. And so this covenant through Abraham is still there. It's not replaced by the covenant with David. Again, it's within this covenant of Abraham. And it's almost narrowed. It's given a more pointed, particularly to do with the throne and the kingdom through David's line. Because the third thing that the Lord makes clear to David, which is the focus for the rest of this morning, David wanted to build a house for the Lord. The Lord said, no, I don't need a house, don't want it. Secondly, it's not going to be you who's going to build it. Your son will. But thirdly, instead of you, David, building me a house, I, the Lord, am going to build you a house. Not of bricks, not of sticks, not of straw, three little pigs. No, not a temple, not even a palace. But I'm going to build you, David, a royal house, a dynasty. Like the house of Tudor or the house of Windsor, as in a family line, except this house, this throne, will be established and made sure forever. That's the main promise God makes to David in this covenant. I will build you a house, establish you a house forever. But there's more to it than just that. If you've still got your Bibles open in 2 Samuel 7, pick it up from verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. There's that prologue to a covenant treaty that we've been talking about, this introduction, historical prologue, gives us the background of what's about, of what's where where we are now. And then there's the first promise. I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Harks back to Abraham, doesn't it? Verse 10, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. The Lord's going to provide a sanctuary for his people, a place for them to dwell, a place where they will enjoy rest. Verse 11, From that time that I appointed judges over my people, I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is quite Edenic, isn't it? A sanctuary, a place where they will dwell and there will be rest, there will be peace. And the Lord says, to you I will make you a house. Strong echoes of God's covenant with Abraham. Again, not replacing it, but a covenant within a covenant. And David, the covenant here with David doesn't replace or displace the Mosaic Covenant either, the law. In fact, as I said earlier, I hinted to Deuteronomy 17, in the covenant there, the Mosaic Covenant, the second reading of that law, 
we actually find laws concerning Israel's kings. Again, seeing the provision and instruction that God himself knew and determined there would be kings of Israel. God says in Deuteronomy 17, you may indeed set a king over you. But he gives instruction. He says, and that king of Israel is not to take for himself horses or women or wealth. Isn't that interesting? It's already there in the law before Saul and Samuel are on the scene. He's not to take for himself all these things. And what does their first king do? Exactly that. So straight away, Saul's not fulfilling and the people are not fulfilling God's commands. And Solomon actually did the same thing. He took wives for himself, didn't he? Foreign wives. Instead, the king is to write for himself a copy of the law. The king is to be a lawman in the sense that he's to delight in the law of God and in doing it. And this law that he writes will be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. The king's meant to have some quiet time each day or however you read your scriptures. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the left or to the right so that he may continue long in his kingdom. You know what brought about Josiah's reforms, don't you? He found this book of the law. The kings had forgotten. And all of a sudden, oh, this is what we're meant to be doing. Here in Israel, under the king of God's choosing, law and promise actually come together. It's not one or the other, it's together, functioning together for the benefit and blessing of God's people that they live long in the land, the king would reign long on his throne. And ultimately it's for the good of the nations. And so God's covenant with David doesn't displace the covenant with Moses. They actually come together and function together quite wonderfully. Verse 12, back in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers and I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Again, echoes of Abraham there, isn't there? But what comfort that must have been for David. What confidence he could have going forward in his kingship as he approached the end of his life, even in death, knowing that the Lord would give to him a son. The Lord would be with his son and uphold his kingdom forever. And I think all the more so what comfort and confidence David could have because he had seen himself with his own eyes what took place with Saul hadn't he here's the Lord's anointed king of Israel and the Lord tore the kingdom away from Saul he had a son good friend of David Jonathan the throne never went to Jonathan so David's seen what happens when the kingdom's taken away from the king what a thing then to be promised this kingdom won't be taken away you will have a son and I will give him your throne See what's happening there? David's just, he's seen one thing and then another. And like, can you think about what it is when, when David prays, Psalm 51, take not your spirit from me? You know, Bathsheba, Uriah, everything is done, there's sin, and he knows what could happen. But he's seen in Saul, again, he's seen the pointy end of it, he's had the spears thrown at him when the Lord took his spirit away from Saul. I just think it just 
gives so much into that verse, take not your spirit from me. Because he's seen it. What happens in a man when the Lord's spirit is taken away? Don't let that happen to me, O Lord. Have mercy on me. How much we need the Lord's promises and how much we need to hear them and know that they're true and he will fulfil them. The Lord promises David a son who will reign and that son, he will build a house for the Lord. He will build the temple, verse 13. But even as he does that, the Lord will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And not just a kingdom, verse 14, this just wonderful intimate communion. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will show him fatherly care and comfort and provision and I will discipline him as well as a father does, correcting and rebuking through the means, how? Of other men, through the nations, <coughs> which Solomon needed. But even with that fatherly care and the discipline and the rebuke that's needed, verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. There's that contrast. Whom I put away from before you. This will never change. My steadfast love will not leave him. Your throne will be established forever. Your house, your kingdom will be made sure forever. At which point, if this was the typical Hittite, suzerain, vassal treaty that we looked at in our first week, the covenant would go on to stipulate the stipulations, the obligations. This is what I'm going to do as your Lord and King and this is your obligation. But there are none. This is unconditional. This is what we call one of those royal grants. This is all promise and the obligations all on the one making the promises. It's unilateral. It's all of God. And as I said, the contrast between Saul and David, God will not renege on this promise. He will not remove his hesed, his steadfast love from David. In this case, history will not repeat itself. And instead of the stipulations that we might expect in the writing or signing and sealing of treaty tablets, which would take place in a traditional covenant treaty, this is just God's promise, God's covenant with David. And so what can David do? What shall I give to you, Lord, for all your bounty to me? I can just receive and worship you. Which is what David does. David worships the Lord. Verse 18, King David went in and sat before the Lord. And his worship begins with absolute humility, doesn't it? Who am I, Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me even this far? And that's been a small thing. You've just promised me all of that. That was a small thing in your eyes. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord. Verse 19. Anyone got a different translation if you've got your Bibles there? Verse 19. This is instruction for mankind. That's the ESV. Custom of man. This is the custom of man. Anything else? The RSV had you have shown me the future. So not quite as accurate or as helpful. Uh, 
The word there is principle or charter. Instruction, this is the way things are going to unfold. This is the charter, David says, for mankind, for humanity. David is saying, this is your plan, O Lord. This is your plan and purpose, not just for me and my family, not even for Israel and the throne here. This is God's charter for the nations, for humanity. This is how God's kingdom will come here on earth through David and his sons. That's how David's worship begins. No small thing. Very humbly speaking about himself because he sees the hugeness of God's promise and great plan here. And he goes on to proclaim the Lord's goodness and greatness. You, O Lord, are great. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. You've done this for Israel. You've redeemed your people, brought them out of Egypt. And now you've said this throne is going to be established forever. And as David proclaims the Lord's goodness and his greatness because of God's promise to him, then he prays, Lord, confirm your word. Bless the house of your servant as you've promised. If you move down to verse, uh, where is it, 28? 27 to 28. You, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. You've made that promise to me. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. I think I mentioned that sort of principle in action last week or made note of it. Remember, Moses petitioned the Lord not to blot out the people, but to remember his covenant. Moses prayed to the Lord based on the promise of God, his promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so too here, David asked the Lord to confirm his word to him forever and I've got courage to pray this, Lord, to ask this of you. Why? Because you've promised it to me. We could be excused for thinking that if God is a God who always keeps his word, he's always faithful and whenever his word goes out, it never returns empty or void. We could be excused, maybe, for thinking, well, if that's the case, if God makes a promise, we know it's going to happen, why pray at all? But that's the exact opposite, actually, of what should be and what is the case here for David. You have made this revelation to me, Lord. You've made this promise. Therefore, I have courage to pray. Confirm what you've promised. David knew for certain, didn't he, where his help came from? just like Abraham could know for certain. Turn with me to Matthew 6 just for a moment. We're going to look at this up the hill on Sunday morning, so it's fresh in my heart and mind. You pray the Lord's Prayer in your church? Often, sometimes, used to be very regular. Why do you pray the Lord's Prayer, I wonder? Don't answer me, just think about it. In the context of Matthew's Gospel, it's a little bit different in Luke, where his disciples say, teach us to pray. But in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Matthew 6, verse 8, don't be like them, don't be like the Gentiles. They think they need to have lots and lots of words and lots of fluff in their prayers, just a bit like um, Elijah and the the priests of Baal. Remember, they had to do all this stuff and dance around and cut that just to get God's attention, Baal's Baal's attention, because he might be off relieving himself or something. So you've got to do all this other... And sometimes we think we've got to pray harder, pray longer and use big words, then we'll get God's attention and he'll answer us more quickly. And Jesus says, you don't need to do that. Don't be like them. 
For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So you don't need to pray. No. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The reason we pray, the reason we pray the Lord's Prayer or like the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't have to be recited, is because God knows what we need. And so we too can pray with confidence. We can have courage to pray because God has revealed himself to us. We don't pray because he hasn't revealed himself to us. The elders up the hill we shared with one of our uh, husband and wife earlier this week. She's got cancer. She's had a tumour taken out of her brain and there's still more to come. She's going through treatment this week and they asked the elders to come and pray. It was good and right to do that. And as we shared with them, we could pray with confidence in the promises of God. It was quite beautiful. We could pray in his eternal promises. We knew, we know that he's working good things and we, they knew that glory awaits, whatever the outcome. And they shared about their total faith in that, but also their struggle in working out his purposes in the day to day. It's one thing to have that great hope for the future, but how does this work out today? Very honest. And yet still we could pray with confidence in his very present promises that he would be with us, that his comfort's there, he would never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing could separate us, that this was not judgment. And we could also pray for healing because Christ has asked us, hasn't he? He's told us to pray whatever we have on our hearts. Ask whatever you will in my name. He wants us to pray. And we could be confident the Lord would hear us and that the Lord's will would be done. And so isn't it wonderful that God has revealed himself to us as he did to Abraham, as he has for David, and as he has for us in Christ. And he's given us his word so that we can pray with courage and confidence. Can't have confidence in anything he hasn't promised, but we can have great courage and confidence in everything he has promised us. Back to Second Samuel. The rest of the Old Testament really tells the story of Israel and the kings of Israel. You can go through Kings and Chronicles and you actually find out there's a lot of kings and not many did good in the eyes of the Lord. Many did evil. Those that did good were all from the south. And it didn't take long, did it? Only one generation later, actually, even with all the wisdom that Solomon asked for and God gave him. He fell into temptation. Many wives, foreign wives, turned his heart away from the Lord and towards other gods. And the Lord said to Solomon, I have to tear the kingdom away from you. But not all of it. And not in your lifetime. Because of my promise to your father, to David. For the sake of David, one tribe will remain with the son of Solomon in the line of David. Just like when the Lord remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob when he's talking with Moses. Here the Lord remembers his covenant promise with David and so he keeps the tribe of Judah in the line of David. 
things seem to go from bad to worse in Israel and then even in Judah. It looks like the king there, where's the king? Judah's under Babylon, reign and rule. They're exiled because they've been unfaithful. But turn over to Jeremiah 33. I realise we're running out of time. Jeremiah 33, there's lots of areas we could go. Just when God's people think that God himself has reneged on all his promises, he has forsaken them, they're out of the land, they've got no temple to worship, <laughs> how, can, how can God be with them? They haven't got a king on a throne. And God says this in verse 14 of Jeremiah 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfil the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings and burn grain offerings and to make sacrifices. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. You get the gist of what the Lord's saying there? Whilst day and night continue, and unless you can break that, my covenant with David, my promise to David will stand. No matter what things like look like on the ground, I have not failed and I have not reneged on my promise to David. And there's so many more places we could look at. We could go a little further back in Isaiah where there's the great promise, isn't there? Isaiah, his first ministry task, go out and speak. If they do hear, they're not going to understand. If they see anything, they're not going to perceive. You're going to whittle them down until there's hardly any left. It'd be great for the first pastor out of Bible college, wouldn't it? Going to give you a church of a thousand, we're going to get down to a hundred, and even that, we're going to whittle down to less and less and less until just a few remain. But there'll be a stump. And the holy seed is a stump. That's the seed, the offspring of Genesis 3, promised to the woman. It's the offspring of Abraham, promised to him. It's the son of David, promised to him. And in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from that stump, a stump of Jesse in the line of David. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And there's so many more we could look at. All the expectation in Jesus' day around Messiah and all the years leading up to that, is this him, is this him, is this him? wasn't all going to play out as they thought, this great Messiah who would come and reign Israel again. <laughs> no, he'd actually die on a cross so that he could reign forever on the throne of David as Lord not just of Israel but of all the nations and all the earth. So in Christ we have one who is a man after God's own heart, don't we? We have a king who reigns over us, an everlasting throne, a kingdom of peace. He will give us rest, a sanctuary, a place to be and dwell with God where we can have rest from our enemies, the greatest of them, sin, the evil one, free from the wrath of God, 
true rest and a sanctuary, a place where we can be in communion with God. He's promised us, hasn't he? I will dwell with you. My spirit will come upon you. I'll live, I'll tabernacle with you. He doesn't need a temple. He's got the church. As in the people, he's got us. And then the day when we'll see him face to face. And he will be our God. And we will be his people. I wonder if we pray the Lord's Prayer together to finish. We've probably got some different versions in our heads, but that's okay. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. We really have only just touched the surface of each of these covenants as well as the whole (laughs) kit, bang and caboodle. But I trust even as we scratch the surface like you do with a bit of old painting that you've given, the Lord's given us something to key in with his word and his faithfulness and our faith in all of that, uh, just in that bond of love um, that we have in Christ. And the assurance that I said in covenant, that's where we find our security, our assurance. I pray that it's helped even just a little bit and given us that confidence in faith to boldly approach the throne of grace. The Lord bless you. Thank you.